Gospel of Jesus' wife was the name given to a fragment of papyrus by Harvard professor Karen L. King. Professor King suggested in 2012 that the papyrus contained a 4th century Coptic translation of a gospel which was likely to be composed in Greek in the late 2nd century. The emergence of the papyrus, the, the emergence of the papyrus's existence rocked the boat rather, as the fragment included the words, Jesus said to them, my wife. It received widespread attention for its implication that Jesus was therefore married. As you can imagine, biblical and historical scholars quickly intervened in the debate around the so-called gospel of Jesus's wife, pointing out issues and inaccuracies with the fragment. The Vatican newspaper labelled the papyrus an inept forgery, and numerous scholars took to their blogs to point out the apparent errors in Coptic grammar, as well as phrases that seem to have been lifted from other early Christian texts. Others deemed the text suspiciously in step with the zeitgeist of growing religious egalitarianism and of intrigue around the idea of a married Jesus. Imagine. But of course, the real debate about whether or not Jesus was married was stirred up several years prior to this. In Dan Brown's literary classic, <laughs> The Da Vinci Code. For those of you who were living under a rock at the time, The Da Vinci Code is a 2003 mystery thriller which controversially suggested that the Holy Grail was in fact the holy bloodline of Christ's descendants, who, were con who was conceived by his disciple, Mary Magdalene. I think it's safe to say that The Da Vinci Code did not have a warm reception from either the literary or the Christian establishment. People were not very happy. At the time, the esteemed Salman Rushdie said, do not start me on the Da Vinci Code, a novel so bad that it gives bad novels a bad name. <laughs> Whilst Richard Abanis commented that the worst aspect is not that Dan Brown disagrees with Christianity, but that he utterly warps it in order to disagree, in order to disagree with it to the point of completely rewriting a vast number of historical events. And making the matter worse has been Brown's willingness to pass off his distortions as facts. The consensus among scholars seems to suggest that it was unlikely that Jesus had a wife. But her presence has been discussed and represented across a range of fictionalized accounts. Like the poem we heard by Morgan, uh, by Morgan Parker, which was read beautifully to us by Avis. To be perfectly honest with you, my Christian faith does not rise and fall on whether or not Jesus was celibate. But as a woman, a wife, and a publisher, I'm rather fascinated by people's reaction to this story about a possible wife for Jesus. So the first thing I want us to think about this morning is the way in which humans have always used stories and myths to engage with and make sense of the world. I think that God loves stories. If she didn't, it's pretty difficult to understand why she thought it best to communicate with humanity through books filled with poems and parables. 
and people telling stories about telling stories. Storytelling is at the heart of Jewish and Christian traditions. The Old Testament is not a theological treatise, but a series of interlinked stories extended over time, from Abraham and Sarah's journey from Mesopotamia to Moses and the Israelites wandering in the desert. Our faith is less about truth as a system and more about truth as a story. And we are part of that story. But many people of faith have failed to embrace the joy of these stories. Instead, we cling to them literally, trying to rigidly impose a set of rules and meanings, and often missing the nuance and humour and context that underpinned them. My favourite story is a poem that we find right at the start of the Bible. It's a story about how the world was made and about the God who made it, a God who rested and rejoiced over all that she saw. Did God enjoy the Da Vinci Code? I think she probably saw the funny side. I think she's also, like me, a Tom Hanks fan, so enjoyed the film adaptation tremendously. God wants us to be storytellers and to rejoice in storytelling. More importantly, I think God wants us to be able to enter into stories and hear what they actually have to say to us. So the second thing I want us to consider today is about the way we interact with stories and myths. The anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss proposed that the meaning of myths lies not in their content, but in the structure of relationships that myths reveal. So this is how stories operate within our culture and how we engage with them as a community. Why do we love horror stories? This is a question I often ask myself because I hate them. Why do people go to the cinema to be scared to death by a horror film? I would suggest that a huge part of the reason we enjoy horror stories is because the fictional articulation of our deepest fears enables us to deal with life. When we give fictional language and images to the dark side of our existence, we find ourselves able to deal with it in the everyday. When the horror of life is left to the realm of myth or film or fiction, we are back in control. We have the choice about whether or not to engage with it. Where this has the potential to be dangerous, of course, is when stories are used to dehumanise the other, when we conflate myth and real life in ways which serve a particular agenda. Nowhere has this been more obviously at work than in the inflammatory language employed by the Trump administration to, fear up, to stir up fear within white America. In May of this year, Trump referred to migrants seeking refuge in America in the following terms. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people, these are animals. In America, those born outside of its borders are increasingly known only as a threat which must be dealt with through a range of increasingly violent means. Trump is carefully narrating a new American horror story in which vulnerable human beings are in fact a sinister threat to the American way of life. They are portrayed as being less than human and it is vital for Trump that their actual stories are not heard. In stark contrast, one of the most successful films of 2018 has been a Marvel superhero film called Black Panther. It, this is of note because it's the first time that there's been a major black comic book hero film. 
It has grossed over $700 million in the United States and Canada alone, and is the highest grossing sole superhero film. The historian Nathan D.B. Connolly said that Black Panther taps into a 500-year history of African-descended people imagining freedom, land, and national autonomy. Its success reveals the shortcomings of a Hollywood which is often referred to black cinema as not being mainstream, mainstream enough to have the budget or profile of its white counterparts. The stories that we tell about the stories reveal our own attitudes towards others. So when I reflect on the debate about, around Jesus' wife, what has always struck me is that it's not actually about her. In all of the column inches, films and documentaries, energies and attention is given not to this potentially fascinating woman, but instead focused purely upon what her existence represents in relation to a man, Jesus. For some people, her existence would mean that the very divinity of Jesus Christ would be called into question. Consequently, a huge amount of time has been invested in rebutting any notion that Jesus had a wife. We are firmly and repeatedly told that Mrs. Jesus didn't exist. End of story. Of course, the idea that women pose a threat to the established order of things isn't a new story. It is part of our story. We see it in the Garden of Eden when Eve offers Adam the apple. And we see this repeated in countless other ways throughout our scriptures. In Romans, we hear about how by law a woman is bound to her husband as, as long as he is alive. The legal freedom of women has been viewed and understood primarily in relation to their male counterparts. We are only legally free to behave autonomously when our male counterpart is deceased. But the same passage reminds us that these earthly laws are not the same as God's law. We need to serve in the way of the Spirit and not in the way of the written code. God is calling us into her imagination and beyond the black and white of our scriptures. The stories that have been told about women, but also about those without power within our societies, have been stories which focus not on the individuals for whom they pertain to, but about the threat that they pose to the person or community who is telling the story. So stories can be joyful, but the way in which we frame stories can also be powerful ways to marginalise and minimise the humanity of groups and individuals. And so, to Mrs Jesus. In Morgan Parker's poem, we are introduced to the wife of Jesus, a woman who has presumably played second fiddle to her husband on countless occasions, who has been loyal as he travels with his group of disciples, and who will bear witness to the crucifixion of her husband at the hands of the Roman Empire. When I think about the wife of Jesus, I see a woman who has endured much heartache and much uncertainty. I see a woman who is brave. When I think about the wife of Jesus, I think about the partners of powerful and charismatic men who sometimes find themselves talking more about their husbands than themselves. When I think about the wife of Jesus, I think about women who think their lives don't have importance, who are mothers and carers and cooks and cleaners 
and professionals and taxi drivers and support networks. The people behind the scenes who make the stuff happen and the people who shout loudly out front but often don't feel heard. When I think about the wife of Jesus, I think mostly about the women that we never hear about. I think about black women and women abused by their partners and teenage mothers who are written off. Of the women who have silently gone before me, having to be the first ones and the ones without the recognition. A fine storyteller has this to say about myth. We are the stories we tell about ourselves and we are more than the stories we tell about ourselves. We fiction and fable in order to tell of things that are more true, that are more than true, and we lie, if only by omission, by reducing ourselves to mere facts. To tell stories is to tell of things that are always changing, because even if the stories don't change, the teller does, and so the story always moves. The wife of Jesus may not have existed, but if we listen but if we listen carefully, even her non-existence has something profound to tell us. May we have the bravery to understand which part of the story we need to tell, and the wisdom to listen to the parts of the story which we are told to. <laughs>